All right. Hello, everyone. Great to see all of you, and I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we are going to continue on with our series titled, The Fear of God Gets the Ear of God. Actually, this will be the last message of the series, part four. Those that fear God get the ear of God, they're near to God, and they hear God. Okay, so you'll actually hear God when you have a proper fear of the Lord. You'll be close to him, and you'll have his ear. When you have the fear of God, it restrains you. When you have the fear of God, you are in submission to him. Your life is not your own. You're not living for selfish ambition. You're not doing things your way. You're doing things his way. And that means that he's the complete Lord and head of your life at all times. Okay? Now, I made a lot of bad decisions in my life. I look at my past kind of like a road. And along that road, there were a lot of road signs. And along the way, God would reach out to me repeatedly to get me to make the right decision or go in the right direction, but I kept taking the U-turn sign and going backwards. Every time God would reach out, all along the way, somebody would talk to me about the Lord, or I'd go to a church service, and the preacher would talk about surrendering all to Jesus, or I would be at a Grateful Dead concert, and somebody try to come and minister to me, and I would just lay claim to knowing the Lord or believing that God exists, that all roads led to God. I, I believed in the theory of relativism. Whatever works for you works for you. This is what's working for me, which it really wasn't actually working for me. And I remember my mom, she used to have a saying. She said, everything happens for a reason. That's what she'd say to me all the time, which reminded me of this sign on the street that I came across. For those of you listening, it says everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and you make bad decisions. I'm sure my wife wrote that, song, that sign. Now leave that up for a moment. Nobody wants to be called stupid, but if you actually study out the word stupid, it comes from this word stupor, stupor. And it literally means to be extremely... Uh, it's not necessarily not smart. It means that you're not in your right state of mind or the wrong senses. You're in the wrong senses. Like you've been extremely diminished in right thinking. Uh, and that diminishment often, like a great example is a drunken stupor. That's a good example of that word. So it can be caused by lots of drugs, lots of alcohol. That was my past. But it doesn't have to come from that. It can also come from extreme apathy. It, and the word apathy means literally you disdain something and you reject it because you don't like it or you don't believe in it. And so I had to take ownership. It's okay to self-deprivate. The truth is I made a lot of stupid decisions and sometimes I still make stupid decisions, which requires lots of repentance, lots of brokenness, lots of mercy, lots of love, Lots of running back to the Lord instead of running from him. I run to him. Now, the last three weeks, I did a, a detailed breakdown of the fear of God, what it is, what it looks like, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But today, we're going to talk about this whole concept of how much we need warnings, that everything doesn't happen for a reason. And when you're being a blockhead, you know, the, the word fool or foolishness in the Bible is the word moron. It means that you're being a blockhead, you're being hard-headed, and you're making dumb, stupid decisions. 
And we just have to own it. And we have to say, look, I haven't been making right choices. And in turn, those bad decisions are causing adverse effects in my life. Now, to heal that, we have to get to the root systems of it. Why am I making those decisions? Where are those coming from? But you can take that down. But for me, what I had to understand is that God would reach out to me all along the way. The Lord was always trying to get my attention. I would sit in services similar to this. God was crying out to me, but I loved my ways better than his ways, or maybe I didn't see the need for his ways. My heart for all of you and myself is to live a life of repentance. A call to action in anything or transformation always starts with brokenness and repentance. You're never going to be able to help someone else or change the situation in your life until there's true brokenness and true repentance. And the more hard-headed, bull-headed, knuckle-headed, block-headed, whatever you want to call it, the more stubborn that we are, the more that ultimately we resist God and God resists us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and care about you, but it does mean that you're ultimately standing in direct opposition to his will for your life. And God loves you so much that he'll actually allow those circumstances of your life to bring you to your knees. That was my story. So the more I rejected, the more I continued to go my own way, I found myself broken, buried alive in a house during a Category 5 hurricane, and then right after that, in prison for a year. Now, that being in prison for a year was a great thing for me because I ultimately came face to face with the Lord because I was so broken. I was so at my end. I had been beat down so far that I finally met Jesus face to face. But the key is I don't want you to go to prison and I don't want you to do the things that I did. And we have a responsibility to help our teenagers and our young adults not make the same mistakes and same decisions that we made. Hence, we have to warn them. Hence, we have to lead by example. We have to not be afraid to be restrainers. And we also have to bring lots of encouragement, comfort, and direction in the midst of that restraint. So my heart is to see everyone repent. This is my heart for this church, is that we would all repent and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't want anyone to reject God by living a life for yourself. Trust me, you do not want to live a life for yourself. You can take the warning now, pre-consequences and destruction, and have an, um, the most amazing life, or you can reject, and what happens is the longer you live, the harder it gets, and I can assure you, the hard toils of life will wear you down. It's better to make the decision now than to have to make some of the same, same mistakes that some of us had to make. Pride and arrogance and haughtiness will crush you. Darkness will crush you. But God's offering life to you today. God wants to bring healing and comfort and wholeness and health to every area of your life. He doesn't want you to live a destructive life any longer. Look, for some of us, enough's enough. At some point, and I'm not talking just about your age. You can be 28, 29, 30 and realize I bombed it and blown it enough. I'm tired of living that way. And you hear me say the statements, you can run, but you can't hide. You can't, because God loves you enough. He's coming after you. You've also heard me say, at some point, you get tired of banging your head against a wall. You can't use your looks, your talents, your abilities, and what you have for your own gain and your own self, because they will kill you. But if you use it for the kingdom of God, you'll multiply and always be blessed in every area of your life. 
I want to see us all lay down pride and arrogance. If we think that we can do life without him, we're doing it our own way, and that's pride. My wife and I were talking last night. Somebody that she follows says, I can sum up all of life in the gospel in two words. It was, what was, give up. And I said, or let go, it was let go. And I, and I said, well, I can sum it up in three, in three words, just die now. And she says, well, I can sum it up in one word, surrender. And, it, and it, she's always got to one-up me. She's always one-upping me, right? And so, but this is, this is the core essence of why Christ died was so that you could look to him and come to him and his life would produce life in you. But you have to also allow yourself to be crucified together with him, which means I forsake all. You do not want to live life for yourself and your own way. I promise you the end is always destruction. Darkness will always kill you, always kill you. And so I was thinking to myself, why would people reject God? Why would people claim to know God and just give lip service to it? You know, Psalm 73 talks about the people in the world that are prosperous that lay claim to being to following God. And it says that they have no struggles, no problems, and they wear pride as a necklace and they're prosperous. But the writer of that Psalm says, but look at me, I suffer all day long. I'm having to deal with basically a word we use is condemnation, not a grit, not the best word, but I'm, or conviction, not condemnation. I feel convicted. I feel admonished. I'm having to suppress my fleshly desires all the time. I'm the one suffering, but look at the world. Look at celebrities, look at Hollywood, look at the wealthy, look at the rich that claim to know God, but aren't actually living for him and aren't obedient to him. And then the writer says, I've come to the Lord in vain. I've wasted my time. And then I've, I'm gonna, I've washed my hands in innocence for no good reason. And that's always the deceptive lie, is that when we compare ourselves to the world or to somebody else, we'll always find ourselves angry, offended, or feeling like what I'm choosing to do is a waste of time, which is a lie. And so I don't want you to just give lip service. To believe is to adhere. To believe is to surrender. To believe is to follow. To believe is to be submitted, not just give lip service. Those that reject the gospel or simply give lip service without adhering cannot truly come to the knowledge of the Lord. They have to have the fear of God inside of them. And it's the fear of the Lord that will ultimately lead you to transformation. For those that continue to be defiant against God and his people, there are consequences. There are consequences. It's the consequences of not properly fearing God versus the consequences of properly fearing God. A good outcome versus a not so good outcome. And that's the struggle is people don't understand the wrath of God. We'll talk a little bit about that, wrath or the anger of God. And in turn, because of consequences, they'll say, well, God's not an angry God. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. Yes, he does love you. But if you continue to stay obstinate and defiant and do things that'll harm you, then there are consequences for that. See, the Bible says in Ephesians 4 that you can be angry. You can be angry, but not sin in that anger, right? So like, I have three kids under 10, and there's a lot of warnings that go on in our house. This is a common statement. I'm warning you. Stop doing that now, right? And it's a warning. 
And ultimately, if they defy that warning, there's a consequence. And it can be something small to losing their iPad to something big as much as a spanking or, or greater discipline. And so God puts consequences in place for those that continuously reject and defy him over and over and over and over again, especially if somebody's doing something to a child or if somebody is doing something to God's people. That's why I said last week, forget the devil. You don't want to mess with the Lord, okay? A good example of this is, is the parable of the landowner. The father's the landowner. The father owns land. And there are workers that are working the vineyard. It's a vineyard. And the vineyard workers work the vineyard day in and day out. And eventually the landowner sends servants, his servants, to go and get the grapes at vintage time. Well, what do the workers do? They kill the servants. So the landowner sets a, sends a second set of servants. And what do the, land, or the workers do? They kill the servants. So then the landowner sends the heir, which is the son. And when the son comes, the, land, the workers kill the son. Guess who shows up next? The landowner. And when the landowner shows up, it's a bad situation for the workers. And so the point that I'm trying to make is, is that God is a just God. All sin has to do with injustice. Why would ever God say something is not good for you or you shouldn't do that? Because it always brings about injustice. God is a just God. So you can be angry and not sin. And even in punishment or anger or consequences, it's always done because he's a loving God. So the lie about hell is, well, God would never send anybody to hell. And we say, well, God, people make the choice to reject him. And in turn, there's an eternal consequence. But it's ultimately because God loves you and you choose to continue to be defiant the entire time. And we'll talk a little bit about the wrath of God. I don't want the wrath of God and you don't want the wrath of God, which is why God sends these roadmaps and he says, stop being defiant to do it your own way. You've got to surrender and forsake all or let go, as we talked about, to him in every area of your life. You have to. It's a lordship issue. When you have complete lordship in your life, you won't get offended at somebody else because you're fully satisfied with what God provides for you in your personal life. Somebody else will never be enough if Jesus isn't your everything and enough. And it doesn't mean that we don't need other people in our lives. But many of us are using a lot of reasons to stay away from the church, stay away from this house, stay away from even the Lord because of what other people have done. And so, I'm asking myself this question, and I think you should ask it too. What are the core roots of obstinance, arrogance, and pride against the ways of God? Why would anybody reject the goodness of God? Why would anybody reject the wondrous life that God has for you? I think that a lot. Like, why would somebody say no to him? So I wrote these down. First, it's an improper view of who he is to them personally. Look, God is an amazing, loving, caring, awesome father. But so many people have a warped view of the character and nature of God, right? Think about the talents, the distribution of talents that was given to the three different people. The guy that got the one talent buried it. Why? Because he said, I knew you, the master, to be a hard man, not reaping where he sowed. Basically, it was entitlement. The landowners at the vineyard had entitlement. I did all the work. I earned it. I deserve it. It's mine. And that's the lie. We don't have anything outside of who God is and what he's given to us. 
So there's this improper view of who God is. We have a responsibility to show people who the Lord really is. I don't want anybody to go to hell. No one. And I'm going to do all I can to keep them from going there. And if they reject the Lord all the way to the grave, I'm not even the ultimate decider because I don't know if at the last breath they didn't say a prayer or cry out to God. I've had people in comas. I've gone to pray for people in a coma that couldn't even talk, but were staring at me. And I knew they could hear me in their spirit. And I said, in your heart and mind, cry out to Jesus. They lived like hellions their entire life. And I don't even know that they confessed the Lord. But what I do know is they had a chance all the way till the moment that they died. And even in that moment, they could have and been saved. So I don't, I never make the ultimate deciding factor because I wasn't there maybe at their last breath. But what I do know is I don't want anybody to go there. And because of that consequence, I want to do all I can to keep people from rejecting. And this is this understanding of snatching people out of the fire. Like think about when somebody's drowning for a moment. It takes about 20 to 60 seconds for somebody that can't swim to drown. That's how fast it is. And depending on their their skill level to swim, what happens is, is the minute that they start to panic, they become irrational. And they're in this terrifying, panicking state where all they can think about is getting that last breath of air while they're trying to push the water down. Which is why for a lifeguard, you're taught when you come up to save somebody, you've got to get behind them. If you don't get behind them to grab them, what will they do? In their panic, all they can think, they don't care about anything. In fact, if you do the research, hundreds of people die a year trying to save someone else that's drowning. So you have to understand that when somebody's drowning, they're in panic mode. And you've got to do all you can to save them without you drowning yourself. If you're not on the rock and somebody's drowning and they come to you, they'll pull you down with them. And so for me, I don't want anybody to drown. I don't want anybody to die. I don't want anybody to perish. I don't want, and that's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. I think all the time, how could the Lord, if if I was the father, I, I would have sent my son back already. I mean, I, it blows my mind to think about what happens with ped, pedophiles and pimps and kids and abuse and how dark this world is. And I think, man, how could the Lord have not come back? And then he always reminds me, I don't want anybody to perish and you have a job to do. And even the disciples are like, Why, when is you going to come back now after you resurrected from the dead? And Jesus is like, it's not time for you to know, but instead, let me, give you, let me equip you to do the job I've called you to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this message, this message may be for some of you in your obstinance and pride and arrogance and stubbornness because you really have not gone all, all in. You're at the peripheral view. You're circling around on the outside. You're watching the river go by instead of jumping in and getting wet. You know about him, but you don't know him. And at some point you have to come to know him. I'm pleading with you. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And you don't even need any money. (laughs) Seriously, come and buy. Come and make the exchange. Your life for the life he wants to give you. And you can get wine, bread. The vats are full. You know, you've heard me say this before. I'd go to Dead Show's Trip Ass and think I could shoot lightning bolts out of my fingertips. (laughs) Seriously, it was good acid. (laughs) 
I always did the best. But the funny thing is, is that was a counterfeit deceptive lie by, brought on by a hallucination. Now, I experience the real thing, the real power of God. I experience true freedom, true joy, true life without the, having to have the hallucination, without having to have those drug-induced experiences that really put me in a state of stupid. I was really stupid. Now you get the real thing. That's why the Bible says, taste and see. It doesn't say see and taste. It says, come to the river. Come and eat the pleasures of my delight. Come and experience the beauty and wonder of what I have for you because it'll be better than any drug, alcohol, sex, anything you ever had. He's so much better. But if we continue to reject and reject and reject, then those other things never ultimately satisfy and they kill us. So first is, I think people don't have a real accurate understanding of who the Father is. They know God is this religious old man sitting on a throne with a staff, angry all the time, an angry God. Angry, 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 angry. If I thought God was always angry at me, I wouldn't run to him. Now, I know sometimes in my past and sometimes today I may do things that anger him, but I know that he loves me. And I know that he'll never, if he tells you to not sin in your anger, he never sins in his anger. So even his wrath is always full of justice. The wrath gets a bad rap. The bad rap wrath. And the truth is, is God, God is a loving, caring God, but can we anger him? Can God be angry? Does he sin in his anger? Is he a God of justice? Are there, are we deserving of consequences and discipline? Yes. And that's why you can run to him no matter what instead of run from him. But if you continue to run from him, it's not going to be a pretty sight. Here's some other reasons why I think people would reject God. They have an improper view of who he is based on what you have seen from people who claim to know him or call themselves Christians or even worse, church leaders. Some of y'all got major church leader hurt. It can be from your pastor. It can be here. And in turn, what happens is you hold it against God. And that's why I learned something a long time ago. If I fall so deeply in love with him and I remove the expectations of everyone else and I'm so full of the spirit and so full of love, I will love you no matter what you do. And I'll care about you no matter what you do. And I won't harbor offenses and anger. Because what a lot of people do is when they see erroneous Christianity or they see or they have hurts, some of it's right, some of it may not be right, and you hold it against God and then go isolate yourself. This is what people say, I don't don't need church. I just need the beach. (laughs) Or I just need to go fishing. Some of y'all are listening to me on this live stream out on your boat right now. You should be in church. Because here's the thing, Romans 1 says that God's made manifest by his creation. And that's why so many people are like, man, I feel close to God when I'm on the beach. I feel close to God when I'm under the stars or on a mountain. But I don't want to be around all those crazy Christians that got all those issues. And the truth is, is that you're out of the will of God if you're not in relationship with his body, no matter how messed up it is. So what I learned is I stopped focusing on how messed up you are 
and I get healthy with myself. And I make sure that I'm doing the best that I can do because you're never going to be enough for me, ever. And if, if my dependency is on someone else, she'll never be enough. David got the, re- the revelation when he said, who do I have in heaven and who do I have on earth? No one but the Lord. Jesus is like, the disciples are like, your mother and your brother, your brothers are outside. They knew. He says, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of God. So the key is to do the will of God. The key is to be totally dependent on the Lord without any expectation of what you're going to do or what you're going to give. Do I want us all to give life and be a part and work together? Yes. Do I want unity? Yes. But unity starts with me. Unity starts with me being healthy. And so I can't hold, I can't, look, I've had past pastors call me Absalom spirit. I've watched pastors yell at other people. I've had been in a church where the pastor stole $250,000 from the congregation. I never held that against God's people or the church or against the Lord. Because I knew if I was ever going to be a change agent, I had to be present not disconnected. If you cut your hand off from your body, it does you no good. And you better believe the devil wants to pick you off and get you isolated and get you mad. Oh, you got imperfections? Who doesn't? But we stay humble. We stay broken. We stay submitted. We walk in the fear of God. So people reject God based on what they've seen. You know, I went to dead shows and I'd be there eating a grilled cheese sandwich, smoking a doobie in a tie-dye with a drum on my shoulder. Red wrestling shoes and a red bandana, tie-dye, actually fiery orange. I'd be at these concerts in the parking lot playing in drum circles, eating grilled cheeses, getting high. And everyone I went to, I would see these people from the church the church, standing on the street corner with these big giant signs that said, turn or burn, repent or perish. Ooh. <laughs> and, then, and then they would be fighting with the deadheads on the corner, yelling, screaming, and the deadheads were yelling at the preachers and the preachers were yelling at the deadheads and I stayed as far away as I could because that was my picture of church. And then back in the day when I went to church, which was, you know, in the early 80s, it wasn't a church like this. There were no band. It was, I went to denominational churches and it was hymns and it was fake flowers and fake plants everywhere. And I was like, this is miserable for me. Get me to a Metallica concert, right? And so the church was just, it had no life. It had To me, it had nothing to offer that was better than what I was tasting and what I was experiencing. And so in turn, I rejected it. It wasn't until I was 13 that I got my first Bible and went to church camp and answered an altar call. It never stuck because for the next eight years, I only, actually, if you look back at my life, I only had about eight years of a wild hellion party lifestyle from 13 until prison. Seriously, and I made up, in, the, in those eight or nine years, I might as well have lived 50 years because I went all in, which is why when the, when the trap sprung, it was the mercy of God because I was standing against him. It wasn't the enemy, and the enemy tried to, what he tried to turn for bad, God turned for good. I used to play drums and congas and percussion in drum circles in the parking lot. Today, the gift can be used for the kingdom of God 
in a worship service. And so God can take your situation, whatever it is, whatever you've done, and always turn it around for your good. But it requires surrendering all to the Lord. So I had this warped view of who God was, but I never got allowed myself to get offended because I learned offense takes a root of bitterness. It always does. And look, I'm going to say this to all of you because I know some of you have struggled here. I'm going to say this nicely. I love you. If my voice doesn't have your heart and this church doesn't have your heart and you've been coming here, find one that does. There are great churches in this city. I love you. Be where God plants you and be spirit-led. You don't get to pick your church. You have to follow the Holy Spirit. You're not mine. You belong to the Lord. And you be obedient to what the Lord says. And it's like, I can assure you I'm not a Saul. But sometimes there can be some Saul tendencies. Go read Tale of Three Kings right now. And you know what? If you don't learn how to make it through a Saul, you're never going to make it when you get to David. And you want to cut the hem of the garment? You got to stop because you're standing against him. Even if I was completely crazy, let's just say I was off my rocker. But God still put me in the position off my rocker. I don't understand why God does that sometimes, but he does, doesn't he? You ever see a preacher or somebody that's totally off their deceptive, thief, stealing? But God put me through all those for a reason to check my heart. It was a test for me. Maybe you're in a test. The next reason why I believe, listen to this. Here's the next reason. People have an improper view of what life serving and living like him would look like. So there's this fear that if I come to the Lord, it's going to be a straitjacket lifestyle. I won't have any fun anymore. If I come to the Lord, I can't just do whatever I want. If I come to the Lord, I'll be restri so restricted and restrained, it'll be a boring Christian lifestyle. It's like some of you think that God's going to turn you into an Amish person or a Quaker or a Mennonite or something. I, it's like you're going to have to wear long flowy dresses to the ground and no more makeup and put your hair in a bun. I don't know what it is that you think. But it's an improper view of what serving and living for him looks like. See, when you actually come to the Lord and lay your life down, there's true freedom, passion, joy, all the fruits of the spirit. You live actually a better life surrendered to the Lord than you live doing it your own way. That's the beauty of coming to the Lord. Here's another reason. You love darkness more than the light and you're not willing to give up the lifestyle. Because let's be honest, sin is fun for a moment. In the moment, sin feels so good until it ends. Until you become more in pain and broken and hurt but there's some people that just love darkness more than they do the light and they're not willing to give up the lifestyle. There's this fear that if I come to the Lord, I'll lose all my friends. I'll lose my identity. I won't have all the things that I want to have anymore. And here's the thing. You might, maybe you need to. See, for me, when I got, you have to understand that when I went to prison, right before prison, I was like, had tons of friends. I'm a social guy. Like I was partying, getting high all the time. I always had the best kind bud. I always had the best of everything, right? And I hung out all the time with friends. When I got out of prison, those were the only friends that I had. 
And of course, I thought, well, I can go hang out with them and I can change them. Didn't work like that. And I remember hanging out with one of my friends and man, we got high. Remember, I got high for a year, spirit-filled, before finally the admonition of the Lord overrode my heart and I got delivered of drugs. And so I remember my friend... right in my face, okay? So y'all are like, you know that all too well. I would hold it as long as I could too, by the way. (laughs) And he blew the smoke right in my face and he goes, there's always forgiveness, bro. I was like, I don't think it works like that. The point was, was that there was justification It was, that's called presumptuous sin. That's that's this mindset that I can do it because I know God will forgive me. David had to repent and say, forgive me a presumptuous sin because that's no way to live either. In fact, that's more defiant. Will God forgive you? Yes. Has God forgiven me a thousand times? And have I done that? Yes. But it's still a sin. And it's still not the best way to live. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live with, I can do it, God will forgive me. Because at some point, the the result of that action could be way worse than what I ever hoped for. Remember, sin always takes you further than you want to go and always costs you more than you want to pay. And it always kills. And so look at the scripture in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Now, this is a pretty hard scripture, but it's pretty black and white. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father and who's in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Yikes. Because the truth is, the gospel and the truth and God's word in and of itself can be divisive. Because people love darkness and they love their ways more than they want to surrender to God's ways. And then Jesus goes on in this scripture to say, you will have household members in your own home that will turn against you. You'll have people that reject you. I actually needed to give up those friends at that time because those friends didn't want to live for Jesus. They just wanted to party and have fun. And they liked the wild party saying, yeah, David. Not the broken, repentant, no, I don't want to do that because I don't want to compromise against God anymore. And you're going to have to draw the line somewhere at some point and make the stand. The word and the truth and the life of Christ in and of itself can be divisive. I'm not teaching today on 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 or 18, but it says, I'll paraphrase it, we're diffusers of either life or death. To those that are receiving eternal life, we're a diffuser of life, the fragrance of life. But to some, you're a fragrance of death, those that are perishing and that are rejecting the word of God. And you can't help that. And you're going to have to understand that persecution will come. You're going to have to understand that at some point, you have to warn somebody that if they keep going their own way, destruction, death, divorce, and a trail of brokenness will be left behind them. Here's the next thing. You haven't been crushed enough by the darkness to realize your desperate need for living in the light. 
Hence, you don't see the need to change. You ever meet people that say, I'm good? The most deceptive thing is to think that you're good. In fact, Jesus said to the rich young ruler who it was too hard to give up his money, he had done everything right. He actually thought he was good. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what good thing? If you actually look at the scripture, it says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, first off, no one's good but the father. Second of all, it was a test. Obey all the commands. You know what the rich young ruler says? Oh, I'm good. I've, been, I've done that since I was a child. And, he, and then Jesus says, okay, if you want to be perfect, why don't you sell everything and follow me and make the exchange? And you know what? It says that the man was full of sorrow because he could not give up his possessions and make the trade. Make the trade, beloved. Make the trade. I understand it can be hard. I've lived paycheck to paycheck. I've lived on the streets. I've bombed it a thousand times over. Make the trade now. I'm telling you, why wait any longer? This is the best life. And the, my life in Christ is not dependent on you. It's dependent on him. Yes. Make the trade. So people think they're good. And I wrote it this way. You haven't been crushed enough, apparently. How much crushing has to happen before you finally make the trade? But there's the flip side to that coin. Maybe you've been so crushed by the darkness. Maybe you've burned every bridge down and been married multiple times and slept around and bombed it so much everything's broken and destroyed, that you're so full of shame that you're actually afraid to come to God because of what he might do or what he might see or what he might say or the exposure of it all. You're so afraid. And I say it this way. You've heard me say it before. I'm say it again. Imagine working out in the Texas heat in the middle of July 100% humidity, you're digging holes, you're working in the yard, you're sweating, you're building a house, you're in construction, you ripped out insulation in a 125 degree attic, like some people do, whatever it, whatever it is. Imagine the hardest, most sweaty, most difficult job in the day. You're filthy, dirty, you've been sweating all day, covered in filth, and you walk into your bathroom, you get a, you get a, a wash rag, you heat it up, put some soap on, then wipe yourself down, and then jump in the shower. Who does that? No, you jump in the shower just as you are. Because I've had people tell me all the time, they say to me, I know, I know I need to come, I know I need to, but I need to get a few things right first. Yeah, I need to get a few things straight. I'm gonna come to the Lord, but first I've got to, and you fill in the blank, I gotta fix this or stop doing this or you've got this mindset that you're gonna behavior modify and fix yourself that doesn't work like that. Instead, the Lord takes you as you are. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Because anything, out, anything outside of the full grace of God saving you was that you did something to save yourself. And it can't, doesn't work like that. Come as you are. Take me as I am, Lord. All the failures, all the mistakes. God loves you. 
He cares for you. You don't have to be afraid to come to God ever. And then the last one I have here is that people are blinded by the devil. They're blinded by the devil and they can't see the light and receive the great news for their life. And that's the scripture that talks about in 1 Corinthians 4, how the devil blinds the eyes of people so that the light of the gospel can't penetrate. So it doesn't matter how much you talk to those people, they have, it's like a horse with blinders on, they can't see. But who's really got the blinders there? The devil does. Which was why prayer and the working of the Holy Spirit and discernment and the right way to say things in the right time because you co-labor with the Lord. How you say it, when you say it, how you love, the example of your life, what they do see inside of you, how you accurately reflect the Lord. All those things with the Spirit of God can remove the blinders. Now, last week I told you there were three reasons why somebody would flee their current lifestyle, but I added one today. So there's four reasons why somebody would leave their lifestyle and surrender all to the Lord. For the first one is the one why I did. And it's the number one on my list, the goodness of God. I was saved by the goodness of God. I was saved because I needed a dad. I was saved because I knew it was my own doing that landed me in prison I knew I was responsible for the choice I made. Now, I had root systems of a broken fatherhood. I had abandonment issues. I had neglect issues. But I knew I was the one that was responsible. And in turn, I made a trade for the goodness of God and the love of God. It's, It's in him we move and have our being. The love of God, the goodness of God also can cause somebody to repent. And the pleasure of the Lord. I now don't have to take acid. I can just spend time with him intimately and in worship and I feel electricity and fire and life all around me and you will too, which is why our next series is gonna be on heavenly worship and the worship of God and the power of worship in your life. So the next reason why somebody would flee or should flee for sure is the wrath to come. Look guys, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. Jesus is coming back. Mark had a dream two nights ago about the second coming of Christ. I've had two rapture dreams. My hands went up in the air and a wind came from the ground straight up. And I instantly started to fly into the sky and I saw people flying up. I saw it in a dream. I saw the second coming of Jesus. I was standing on top of what looked like old Jerusalem on a house with clay Italian tiles. And I'm looking across the horizon and the sky opens up and there's a hole. And out of the sky comes lightning flashing. And here comes the son of man. He was like this actually. And he had a white robe with a blue shawl and a gold band. And he came straight down, a giant came straight down out of heaven onto Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. Jesus is coming back. Judgment is coming. There is a wrath of God. I'll get to this in a minute. I'm going to show it to you now because it fits. Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's in the Bible. And that's why true fathers and lovers of God 
warn people because I love you. Here's a, you, you know the, the, the story of the guy that keeps falling in the same hole every time? <laughs> that was me. I, I want to keep you from that. There's a better way around it. There has to be a warning. And I tell my kids on a daily basis, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Now, some of y'all is like, one warning, one strike, you're out. I'm so mercy-driven, I'm like eight warnings later, <laughs> finally laying the law down. But at some point, I have to lay the law down. Do it again. And do, do I get angry? Yes. Some of you are so terrified of anger because maybe you saw abusive situations, but you can be angry and sin not. I'm telling you again, stop it. Do it one more time and the consequences will not be pretty. I don't cuss at them. I'm not beating them. I'm not breaking their spirit. I'm directing and correcting and disciplining them for their good out of perfect love. The next reason why I believe somebody should flee is the current state of your life, the wrath upon you now. It's like, oh, there's the judgment's coming. How about now? You ever meet somebody whose life is a total train wreck? I mean, it's bad. I'm like, dude, how much worse can it get? Surrender now. Give, give your life to the Lord. And then finally, godly sorrow for your failures, mistakes, and past. There has to be godly sorrow. Because godly sorrow always leads you to do the right thing and make recompense for what you did. I apologize. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You know how many people God had me go back to? I was raised in a small town in Missouri, 10,000 people. Most, now, not everyone, but most people slept with each other's boyfriend and girlfriend in my high school. It was party time. It was one main street drag about two, mile, two three miles long. It was hanging out in the parking lots, keg parties. It was hanging out out at the gate on the country road. Every country song I've ever heard. Okay, not everyone. But most of them, it was parties out in the country and it was hookup central, right? And basically, I lived a terrible life of sleeping around. And then went to Miami. It was ladies' nights and bars and parties and one-night stands. And I counted, like, after I gave my life to the Lord, I counted so many different girls that I had slept with. And I felt so bad for it that God had me write all their names on a little piece of paper. And I took all their names, I put them on a paper clip, and I tucked them right inside my waistband, right in, on the edge of my underwear. And I carried them with me for a week. Because I felt the weight I wanted to feel the weight because I wanted to kill that thing that was inside of me because I never wanted to go back to that life. And at the end of the week, you know what I did? I confessed it. I repented. I forgave them for what they did to me. And I forgave myself for what I did to them. See, some of you have forgiven other people, but you haven't forgiven yourself. And then I took that little stack and I threw it in the fire. I threw it into a fireplace and repented. You know, we live in the most amazing place. I actually love living here in Corpus Christi. Now, we don't have mountains, but you have a national seashore. And you know something that I do repetitively that's a, been a consistent habit? Jesus had a habit of going to the mountain to pray. One of the things that I do a lot is I'll go down to the national seashore, and I did this early on too, and I want to encourage you guys to do the same. 
It's okay to feel bad about what you did in your past, but don't let it be worldly sorrow, which will kill you. That's regret. Some of you are living in regret of what you've done. Don't live in regret. Just live in godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which then leads to salvation. And I would take those things. Here's my advice. Stop by the stripes on your way to the national seashore and get a little thing of lighter fluid. Now you can't do this if there's a burn ban. But, but I'm telling you, go where no one's at, dig a little hole, take all those people that you hurt, anything you've done, all the things God shows you, all the drugs. Because God showed me I had this emotional soul tie connection inside of me that I needed a break. My, I was raised in perversion. And if I didn't get aggressive to break it, it would follow me all the days of my life. And so I went out to the National Seashore, or I encourage you to do, dig a little hole, put your stuff in there, douse it with lighter fluid, set it on fire. And then lift your hands to God. Sometimes like, I, you won't lift your hands here. Well, if you're worried about what other people think and say, go way out there where no one sees you and lift your hands. Get it out of your life. Once Repent. You don't need to carry this weight. Jesus took it for you. Ask for forgiveness. Let it go. And even after I did that, there were still things and, and people that God would bring to my mind. And I would just say, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry for what I did. Forgive me for what I did. And I forgive them for what they did to me. So many people have an improper view of God's character and nature. I talked to you about the man with the one talent. Look at Matthew 24 and 25. When he received the talent, he came to the Lord saying, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. I was afraid. Let me tell you this. The way you see God is the way you'll serve God. The way you see God is the way you will serve God. Do you know him to be a hard man and do you feel entitled? Or are you broken and realizing he's an amazing, loving father that loves me no matter what, even when I've fallen short? This is why you can run to him and not run from him. But if you see God like this guy saw him, you'll, not only will you hide what God's given you, you'll hide yourself. Either we see him as a cruel master or a loving father. Judge, we see him as judgmental, condemning, hard. A hard God, that's a narcissist. God's not a narcissist. He's full of the fruit of the spirit, full of love, full of kindness. He's a loving and giving God that always has your best interests at in mind. You know the story of the prodigal son? It wasn't the father that had the issue. It was the prodigal son that had the issue. Some people just see it as too difficult to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus took it to the next level and said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're gonna have no life in me. But if you do, you'll have eternal life. John 6, 60. Many of the disciples walked away saying it's too hard. What was Jesus talking about when he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood? You know, in the Jewish culture, you never ate or drank blood. But Jesus was talking about something bigger, abiding. Abide, 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 abide. You sing a song about abiding, okay? <laughs> I'm telling you, abide. So Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then hundreds of people left. And they said it was too hard. 
But I want to tell you, have you heard the saying, it's so much harder to have faith in believing there's not a God than having faith in believing there is a God? It's way harder to be an atheist. I told you about the rich young ruler already. He walked away sorrowful because he had great possessions. You know, when I got asked to uh, take a job in Corpus Christi, I said, no way. Because God, I thought God was calling me to Miami, Florida. I grew up in Miami. I had a chance to do evangelism on the University of Miami. I got offered a job to go be the campus director for an outreach ministry under YWAM. Guess what the name of it was? Waves. It stood for with a vision to evangelize students. And I had already worked for them when I was in Miami. Now I had gone to ORU and I was being asked to go back to Miami to lead a campus outreach at University of Miami. I was so excited. I said, man, I'm gonna take this job. What do you, how much does it pay? And the, the director was like, it doesn't pay anything. You have to raise your money. I'm like, oh, Miami without a paycheck? I was like, no way, Lord. And I wrestled with God literally for three weeks. And finally I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. Whatever it takes. And that day I got a call about Corpus Christi. And I told my friend that called me to come here. I said, God's calling to Miami. He goes, I think you need to rethink that. And really it was a test. Was I willing? I think the rich young ruler, it was a test. I don't know the answer. Might he have been required to? If he was going to be dependent on his stuff, he would have. But if he would have surrendered all and followed Jesus, Jesus would have said, hey, you know what? Why don't you take half that and let's bring it along the road? I don't know what he would have done. Or let's use it for the purpose of the kingdom and watch how much more. Who knows what it was if he would have said yes to that? That's why I'm saying to you, when, when I was making $180,000 a year in the corporate world, my friend Mark Lewandowski said, I feel like you're supposed to take this job as a youth pastor, which paid $30,000 a year. I said, no way I'm walking away from $150,000 a year. He said, I see the Lord in heaven with his hands tied. And as long as you stay in this big paying position, the hands of the Lord are tied. But if you will forsake all and take the job, the hands of the Lord will open and you will see the blessings of heaven downpour upon you. Because we, we move our families, we move out of the will of God, we chase jobs, we go live isolated, we get into darkness. More people have left and come back because community and family is way more important than a paycheck. God will bless your life even more. Okay, how about loving darkness? Are you guys okay? Can you give me a few more minutes? Good, because I'm going to take it anyway. <laughs> John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who doesn't believe is condemned. Because why? He doesn't believe in the name of Jesus. Here's the condemnation. The light came to the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that what, in what they've been done in God. So there's no condemnation for those who believe and have an accurate fear of the Lord. However, for those who do not, they are already living in condemnation. The word condemnation in the Greek is the word crisis. It means separated and living under judgment. It means a decision of justice. It means judgment concerning right and wrong, injustice versus justice. It's sentenced to punishment. 
a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger, a time when a difficult decision must be made. You know, in uh, Joel chapter three, the valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat, multitudes and multitudes are in the valley of decision, indecisive about the life and the choice, and then the decision of judgment is upon them. So those that don't know the Lord that love darkness are already living in crisis. How about fear, shame, and control in the garden? I won't read it all to you now, but it's Genesis chapter three, verse seven through 10. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They re- their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They fall into shame. And what do they do? They run and hide when they hear God coming. So God's coming. Don't run and hide. They sewed fig leaves over themselves, which is a temporary covering that would never last, thinking that their fig leaf would cover their shame. They couldn't. So they were afraid of God and what they were seeing in themselves. An inaccurate view of you will give you an inaccurate view of God. Think of the grasshopper mentality. The the spies go into the promised land and they see the cities built to the sky and the giants there. And what what did 10 of them say of the 12? They said, we were grasshoppers in our own eyes versus David when he comes in front of Goliath. He's like, who is this uncircumcised? He's going to defy the living God? Where's my sack of stones, my five smooth stones? I'm going to take this giant down with one hit right between the helmet, right between the eyes with no concept that he wouldn't at any time because he had no fear. I want to be like David. How you see God, how you see yourself in an accurate view of yourself will give you an inaccurate view of God. It'll also give you an inaccurate view of your enemy. He's too big. There's no way. But there is a way. His name is Yahweh. (laughs) Drum roll. (laughs) Being blinded by the enemy. We won't pull them up. I'll just read them to you real quick. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. These are people that are are veiled and perishing. 2 Timothy 2 talks about people being ensnared by the devil and been taken captive to do his will. And it says that they're not in their right mind. They're out of their senses. They literally have gone out of their senses. It means that they're not thinking straight, they're irrational, they're behaving unreasonable. And this is where apologetics comes into play. How many of you know what apologetics is? Apologetics is giving a defense or an answer to somebody that's in contrary to the things of God. It's not apologizing. What it is, it's a plea that clears yourself. It's a verbal defense or a reason, statement, or argument that justifies your position, especially in doctrine. People are gonna wanna know the reason why you believe what you believe. And we're to give an answer with meekness and fear. First Peter chapter three talks about that, which leads me to this one scripture that I've been wanting to teach on. I'm gonna say it quickly. Jude chapter one, verse 21 through 23. Jude 1, 21 through 23. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So the context of this is ministering to somebody that has been either 
fallen into apostasy or been, been ministered to by somebody that is an apostate. The context of Jude 1 in the scripture is people that are sensual, people that are deceptive, people that are demonic, that claim to know the Lord have infiltrated and corrupted these people. They're sensual, divisive, and they're deceived spiritually. Now they've influenced these other people who are believing it and going into a horrible lifestyle and a horrible direction. These people are in the valley of decision. They're making a distinction, trying to decide. They're in doubt. It's that valley of decision that I talked with you about. So some of them, compassion's not gonna work. There are some people that mercy and love and compassion's not gonna save them. That's where we get the some save with fear. Well, what kind of fear? It doesn't say, it just says some save with fear. Actually, let's just look at it in the Passion Translation. Jude 1, let's read it this way. Keep being compassionate to those who still have doubts and snatch others out of the fire to save them. Be merciful over and over to them, but always couple your mercy with the fear of God. Be extremely careful to keep yourself free from the pollutants of the flesh. So we have to pull people out of the fire. You know what I call it? A Holy Ghost Intervention. How many of you ever like to watch that show, Intervention? Some of y'all like all about that show. That show drives me nuts because I want to jump in the TV screen and show them Jesus and cut these root systems because they think that rehab is going to be the only answer. Okay? But think of a Holy Ghost Intervention. You are in the flames of fire and where you're going is bad. I got to show you tough love. If I come behind you when you're drowning and you keep kicking and punching and you're going to pull me down, I have to take drastic measures. It's not normal for somebody saving somebody to punch somebody in the face, but if it takes that to knock them out into their senses because they're out of their mind, they're irrational. If somebody's sliding down the slide, if destruction, sometimes waiting for them to fall is not the answer. You got to grab them off and rip them out. Snatch them. So the fear of God motivates me to snatch them out. But there's also this mindset that, look, you're, you never have to walk by fear as a Christian except the fear of God. But for a non-Christian who's in apostasy, dude, you better change your ways because the fiery flames of indignation are going to come your way and it's not going to be good for you. Get out! With a smile. We always have to lead and look with mercy and compassion. But how many of you know what tough love is? Let me, you know, t there's a definition for tough love. Do you know that? Let me read it to you. Tough love is a promotion of a person's welfare, especially that of an addict, a child, or a criminal, by enforcing certain constraints on them or requiring them to take responsibility for their actions. That's tough love. I'll put constraints on you because I care about you. Take responsibility for your actions or prison. I don't want you to have to be in behavior modification, but I needed that. Some of us needed that. Thank God for prison for me. For my kids, it's sending them to their room. To prison you go. <laughs> Except the problem is their toys are in there. It's like, oh. I mean, for some, he's like, please send me to my, I loved it when I got sent to my room. 
You know what an antonym for tough love is? The antonym, enabling, coddling, babying, pampering, indulging with them. When we don't show tough love when it's needed, especially for the mercy-driven people like me, we actually enable and coddle that person in their sin. Think about it this way. If somebody comes up to me at the altar, hey, listen, I've got, I'm having an affair with my wife. I got five kids. I just, I just want you to tell me it's okay. Oh, mercy. It's okay. Let me pray for you. Have a good day. Anybody see a problem with that? Is that what you think we should do as a prayer partner? Oh, oh, you're, you're pimping somebody? Come here. Oh, I know. Oh, you're beating your child? Oh, man, it's okay, bro. Um, it's all right. You're forgiven. Have a good day. And then when somebody comes to correct you or direct you, you get, I'm going to say, you get butt hurt. <laughs> I'm so glad I said that. I've been wanting to say that for the longest time. You know what happens when you don't snatch them out of the fire? You make them comfortable in it. I think of this joke. I got a great joke for you. Okay, this guy goes to hell and there's the devil and there's three rooms that he gets to spend eternity in. The first room, the devil opens up the door and you have all these people standing on their head in horse and cow manure. He's like, oh, I'm not going in there. Goes to the second room. Everybody's standing on their head on a hardwood floor. He's like, oh, I'm not going in there. And then he goes to the next room, and there's everybody standing up drinking coffee in the horse manure. And he's like, oh, man, coffee in hell? I'll take that. So he goes in there, and the devil comes back a few minutes later and say, okay, everybody, coffee breaks over. Back on your head. <laughs> Listen, there's no pleasure there. You're not going to be jamming with Stevie Ray Vaughan in hell. I just use him as an example. I don't even know for sure that he's there because I don't know what he said at the last breath, okay? So, calm down, y'all. Calm down. <clears throat> we, how tolerant can, should we be? This is why you have to be spirit-led. The Bible says that the wrath of man never produces the righteousness of God. It's not the wrath of man. You have to be discerning. You have to know how to love somebody and lead them out of it. You have to keep being compassionate and be extremely careful. Lots of grace and mercy. You're compassionate to everyone, but love can be tough love. If we continue to be defiant, the consequences will be destruction. How much mercy does God have? More than I could ever imagine. His mercy endures forever. How much mercy has God had on you? I'm amazed. I just cannot understand sometimes that God can be so good. How do you bomb it so bad and God just keeps on loving you? How does God just keep caring about you? How does God let you bounce back every single time? Because he loves, but he also disciplines. And there's also judgment. He can be angry, but he never sins. And he's not an angry God. He's a loving God because he's a father. 
It's okay to have tough love. Be constrained. Be restrained. If I wasn't restrained by God, imagine, I can't even imagine what my life would be like. So in closing, I'm going to say this. Stop being defiant. To anybody listening to my voice today, surrender. Live your best life surrendered to Christ. He loves you and has the best in store for you. Whatever it takes. If you lose friends and have to sell all your possessions, okay. Don't hold on to anything so tight so that God doesn't have to pry it out of your hands. Do the right thing. Do the righteous thing. Be broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. No, I'm not perfect, but I want to love perfectly. And sometimes I don't know how. I don't know how to do it sometimes with three kids and businesses and a church and farm animals. I mean, shoot, the farm animals are the worst of them all. It's animals everywhere. Animals at home, animals at church, animals at the coffee shop. No, I'm kidding. Maybe not. I, I mean, look, you only have so much capacity. We all do. Have compassion. Stop taking things personal. We're all, we want to do it God's way. And I don't have one leader in here that doesn't. We want to. And I'd rather err on the side of tough love more than no love and letting you do whatever you want to do. There's lots of places you can hide out. If you want to hide out, <clears throat> this isn't going to be the place. And the only way that we're going to help the people that truly walk in here is if judgment starts in this house. Judgment starts in the house of God. How do we do it when this church doubles in size? Tag, you're it. It can't rest on the shoulders of a few. It rests on the shoulders of a whole body. Get healthy. Stop being defiant. Just break. It'll be your best life, I promise you. It'll be your best life. Okay? No more pride. Lots of forgiveness. Lots of repentance. Lots of forgiveness and repentance. How many times in a day? 480. How often is that? Every 2.8 seconds. I forgive you. I really want to be mad at you, but I only have two seconds. I forgive you. Yeah, 2.8 seconds. Go. Time's up. Okay, that was too fast. Let's all stand.